0: everybody. Welcome to Happy Dog Takes on the World. My name is Sean Watterson. I am one of the owners at the Happy Dog. Um, I am not at the Happy Dog, but I've tried to bring as much Happy Dog here as I can. So we've got uh, the tater tot, we've got the hot dog, and I'm drinking my Happy Dog beer. Um, Thank you to everybody who's been so supportive while we've been closed. Uh, It'll be a year coming up on March 15th. Um, We look very, we very much look forward to coming back and being able to do this in person. Uh, But um, we are very grateful to our partners for being able to continue to do this programming throughout COVID. And speaking of those partners, um, those are the City Club of Cleveland, who is the lead sponsor, and uh, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle East Studies, International Partners in Mission, and of course, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs. Uh, this programming wouldn't be possible without Stephanie Jansky at the City Club, and it also wouldn't be possible with Tony Ganser, our moderator from WCPN Idea Stream. And with that, I will turn it over to Tony to kick off tonight's topic. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks, Sean. Great to see a piece of the happy dog there. Hope y'all can hear that. It's a real gong, honest. Hello, and welcome to our virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World series. I am Tony Ganser, afternoon host for Northeast Ohio NPR station WCPN Idea Stream. The Biden administration has sanctioned seven mid- and senior-level Russian officials in a slate of businesses and other entities over a nearly fatal nerve agent attack on opposition leader Alexei Navalny and his subsequent jailing. The U.S. intelligence community has declared it has high confidence that the attack on Navalny was carried out by Russia's Federal Security Service. On Sunday... Navalny arrived at a penal colony east of Moscow to serve his sentence, just the latest development in his opposition to Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, fueled by corruption allegations, claims of election manipulation and fraud, assassination attempts, and other abuses. The situation also heightened tensions between Russia and the European Union. In February, Moscow expelled three european diplomats for allegedly attending demonstrations in support of navalny and eu officials are considering proposed sanctions uh, in response to that and we had news on that as i mentioned tonight we'll talk with national experts about navalny and his opposition movement the future of the kremlin and what all this means for russia's relationship with both the eu and the united states We're joined by Dr. Andrew Barnes, an associate professor of political science at Kent State University. His research and teaching interests are in post-communist political economies, the politics of international finance and oil, and the links between markets and democracy. He's also author of the book, Owning Russia, the Struggle Over Factories, Farms, and Power. Andrew, thanks uh, for being here again. Thank you very much for having me. Also joining us, Dr. Regina Smith, a political science professor at Indiana University, Bloomington, where she teaches graduate and undergraduate classes on comparative politics, protest movements, and Russian politics. She has written extensively on political development in the Russian Federation, including her recent book, Elections, Protest, and Authoritarian Regime Stability, Russia 2008 to 2020. Quite a title, but very uh, applicable. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Really glad to join you tonight.
1: As in every City Club forum, you can participate as well with your questions. You can text them to three three zero five four one five seven nine four 541 5794 on your screen for your convenience, 330 you can also tweet them at the city club i have a screen up now and i will weave in your questions and comments as we go so with that let's begin as i mentioned in the introduction uh both of you the biden administration has issued some sanctions limited sanctions connected to this navalny episode so i wonder if both of you can just comment on what happened today and uh, why it's notable. Maybe, Andrew, you want to start? Sure. Um, So, as you've summarized, what happened today is uh, another step
3: in the saga uh, regarding Alexei Navalny, um, a leading opposition figure in Russia today. Um, We'll talk about this from several different directions, but you asked specifically about the sanctions. Um, This likely signals uh, the direction that uh, policy will go towards Russia under Biden, that is to say uh, a bit more uh, steadfast and a bit more consistent uh, in its application uh, of of U.S. policy toward Russia, at least that's my expectation at the moment. Um, It's not going to get Navalny out of jail tomorrow. Uh, He has been sentenced to uh, well over two years, about two and a half years uh, of of prison time. essentially on trumped-up charges, which we can uh, talk about in more detail later, uh, but it it signals the way the United States is going to uh, interact with Russia. We have recently extended uh, cooperation on nuclear questions, uh, the last uh, nuclear prolifer- proliferation treaty we've got with them, but uh, we're not going to simply watch as someone gets put in jail for uh, obviously political reasons. Maybe I'll turn it over to Regina there.
2: So let me follow up on the theme that Andrew started about why this may be different. This administration is different, but also this set of sanctions are different. The first thing I'd like to say is that these sanctions are specifically about the use of the Novichok nerve agent in poisoning Navalny. So it's about the poisoning. We haven't even gotten to discussing sanctions about human rights abuses and so forth. The second thing that's uh, interesting and new about what the Biden administration is doing is that it's engaged NGOs that deal with chemical weapons and chemical warfare in uh, bringing these sanctions and in the discussion of what could change or what kind of pressure could be put on Russia. The second big difference is that uh, unlike... In the late Obama administration, but certainly in the Trump administration, these sanctions are brought in cooperation with our partners in the European Union. Um, And there still remains some disagreement between the US and the EU over sanctions, but this is the first sign of cooperation we've seen in a while. Um, And then the last big difference here, I think, is that unlike the other sanctions that the US has imposed, is that these sanctions have provisions to be rescinded if Russia begins to comply. So this is also often a problem with sanctions. When do we agree that uh, the, the prompt for the sanctions is no longer part of the picture and the sanctions could be lifted? And here we have sort of clearer benchmarks about how to do this. And I think this is a really smart and good move uh, on the Biden administration. Let me just add finally that what I found most interesting in these sanctions is that while uh, the high-level, high-ranking Russian officials that are listed here come from the FSB and the security services, allies of Putin who had the uh, Russian Guard, which is the protest police, it also included two actors, uh, most notably Sergei Kiryenko, who uh, heads the presidential administration and will be running the campaigns for parliamentary elections and presidential elections. So these sanctions reach both into the security apparatus and the political apparatus.
1: I guess one question on the effectiveness of sanctions. That seems to be a perennial problem. Do sanctions actually work? Do they actually force a regime or a country to modify what they're doing? Um, these seem very limited as, as you lay out. Uh, so what is the expected uh, response, I guess, from the Kremlin? Is it anything or is it just uh, a message that maybe we're taking you a little more seriously? Regina?
2: Um, Well, the sanctions were also against some companies and some elements of construction of chemical weapons, which will slow down but not eliminate the production. Most of these are not as sophisticated as we sometimes imagine they might be, right, from a James Bond movie or something. I think the sanctions uh, directed at the leadership have two goals. The first is to try to loosen the connections between Putin and his elites, that is sort of create elite defection and give people reasons to turn on Putin. This particular set is not likely to ever turn. They have nowhere to go. Um, so the second uh, point is to just demonstrate that we understand how we, the international community, understand how the system is working and also to signal to Russian citizens to the extent that they Pay attention to these things that uh, these folks were involved in the in the process of poisoning.
1: Do you agree, Andrew? Yeah,
3: I I do, and I would uh, add that it likely also signals uh, greater cooperation between the United States and and Europe, um, which is something that Putin has tried to undermine for the last four years. Um, And uh, something that Regina has pointed out in her work uh, on Russian domestic politics is that everybody involved in in Applying sanctions and counter sanctions is always learning uh, that there's room to, uh, these are not the sanctions that were applied when I was young, right, against South Africa or Cuba or whatever. Um, They were supposed to get sharper and that happened uh, when Crimea happened. And uh, this time around, they're focused on Uh, people that you might not have thought would would be sanctionable. Uh, And Regina's right, they have nowhere else to go. They're not, you're not going to break the security services through sanctions, but uh, we're trying something new. Russia will likely try something new in response. And so the United States and Europe will then have to respond to that.
1: At least in the media, the the storyline uh, that people like me are telling are are about opposition figure Alexei Navalny poisoned. He decides to go back to his home country uh, in the face of a powerful Kremlin. He's arrested immediately, thrown in jail. Um, uh, you know, and there's outcry, uh, rightly outcry for for the injustice of the situation. But as you point out, you both point out these sanctions are about the poisoning. It's not necessarily about any violation of human rights for Navalny or any uh, stand for democracy, for example, from the West. Um, Is that part of maybe the nuance of the situation with Navalny or or maybe the complicated relationship the West is still trying to figure out after decades uh, with Russia? Uh, Maybe, Andrew, you want to start this time? Sure. Um, So I I don't know inside the Biden administration what's
3: happening, but what I've seen over the last four plus years is... um, well, an effort by the previous administration to undo the capacity to deal with um, international issues, including Russia, but also in the Middle East, China, and so forth, uh, and and we can cooperation with with uh, Europe, and this is happening from the American side. Um, so. One of the enormous tasks facing the Biden administration, which might take the entire four years, uh, although they've gotten a rapid start, is to rebuild uh, the American governmental capacity to do these kinds of things. They have to restaff agencies. They have to uh, remove people who've been there, whose job it was to um, shrink the administration and, and and weaken its ability to act. Um, and so I, th- my guess, and that's all it can be at this time, is that this is a first step, um, that there will be more things like this, that uh, discussions of how to enforce human rights um, will emerge into a strategy over time. And this is just, just one part of that.
2: Regina? Yeah, so I'll, I'll just add that um, the potential here and what President Biden has written quite a bit about is going after not only these oligarchs or money folks around the Kremlin but about the banking systems money transfers and dark money strategies that they use and this the U.S. can do unilaterally and it can do with its allies helps both and there are many problems in this but in in pursuing this strategy, but the president's been quite vocal about the two-pronged strategy, reasserting U.S. leadership in uh, human rights and human rights protections, and also protecting U.S. security by eliminating influence through money. And so Navalny and his team are calling for the U.S. to make good on that promise and to start going after this dark money. And I suspect that might be some of the next steps we see.
1: That's a good segue into our uh, first question. Actually, this person says there have been calls uh, for the need to use the Magnitsky Act to freeze the assets of Putin's closer associates, the oligarchs around him, uh, for maximum effect. Can you comment on the likelihood of that and what would it take for that uh, to happen? Not sure who wants to take that. Regina can go first. I'll, I'll
2: start. Yeah. So I've been okay. thinking about this. This is a real challenge because there, uh, these things are going after things like shell corporations, finance laws, real estate, uh, um, property rights registration, and so forth. We, the U.S., already have quite an active uh, FBI policing force doing some of this work. It seems to be coming more active in terms of Russia. And I feel hopeful that having written extensively on this before coming to office and maybe even before considering running in 2020, President Biden has sort of pre-committed to this strategy. And so I think it's more likely than it ever has been. And the drumbeat for this is really building both in the community that Andrew and I belong to, but the policymakers themselves.
3: Right, I would uh, certainly agree with that, uh, and add that this is this is the sort of thing. Uh, navali didn't have the ability to uh, to impose sanctions or anything like that, but the, the type of work he did um, is the type of work that a number of people around the world are doing. Um, as we come to understand the way the global economy functions now and what that means for states' capacity to sanction behavior, um, to enforce local laws or to engage other countries in discussions about human rights or about trade or whatever. Um, He was able, first in in 2008 or so, he would buy shares of companies, which then gave him access to documents and then he would post exposés on his blog. Now he produces uh, very well produced uh, videos on YouTube Some have gotten uh, tens of millions of views, many uh, usually get one to two to maybe 10 million views uh, demonstrating corruption and how it's executed uh, in Russia. Sometimes it's fairly simple kickbacks and sometimes it it is money that moves through all these shell companies that Regina was talking about. Uh, This kind of business has been going on in a lot of places for a very long time. Um, Swiss banks are sort of seen, I don't know, romantically I think in American literature sometimes, but that's sort of the uh, archetype uh, of a hidden bank, a bank you can't get into. And now they're in the Caymans, and they're in the um, islands around Great Britain, and they're all around the world. They're in Delaware. Um, and so what we're finding is just how much this matters. Um, and I agree with uh, with Regina's hope that, that Biden uh, has known this for a while and is coming in with people who are prepared to try to um, engage that knowledge and try to, uh, impose sanctions that will matter, uh, but I don't know how easy that is. Uh, This sort of activity has been pursued for a very long time. Uh, We've got more
1: tools now, but we'll just have to see how effective it becomes. Regina, did you have another thought on that?
2: I just wanna follow up on a a statement that Andrew just made from a different perspective. And that is that this is not a Russia problem, right? This is a contemporary autocracy problem. And this kind of dark money comes not only from Russia but many countries. And what would be good about a strategy like this is that it's not singling out Russia, but all countries that are engaged in trying to influence politics of other countries by using these financial flows and that would increase cooperation around uh, dealing with these issues.
1: You know, Andrew, uh, because you mentioned Swiss banks, uh, I'll, I'll have to to go back to my time covering Swiss banks, at least on a limited basis. And it was a, a big conversation in the country uh, when the federal council, uh, the executive, decided that freezing assets of autocrats uh, that they were holding in Swiss banks uh, should be frozen, uh, should be redistributed uh, back to state coffers, for example. That was a big deal in the Swiss mindset because Because Swiss privacy, banking privacy, that's part of their DNA. Uh, That's how they they transformed from an agrarian society to this financial powerhouse, right? But it's different um, to, I would think, to freeze the assets of an autocrat who has lost all favor in the international community compared to Russia, which is still very much a state actor, has a lot of power in many sectors. Um, can you talk about maybe that, um, that dichotomy, I guess, of, of imposing sanctions and really going after, for example, Vladimir Putin? Right. Uh, well, I think you're certainly right. Uh, some people
3: are more equal than others, some countries are more equal than others, some actors more equal than others. Um, I would uh, go even beyond um, in some ways what Regina said when she accurately said that this is not a Russia problem, it's an autocracy problem. It may be a global economy problem today uh, and autocratic leaders uh, are able to use it in certain ways that previous autocratic leaders couldn't. So can capitalists in democratic countries, so can democratic governments and so on. So it's an enormous issue. Um, And I may be a step before that. I'm looking for uh, governments, uh, other sources of authority to better track activity, even if they can't shut it all down, right? Freeze all the assets of Russia. That would be an incredibly blunt instrument as I'm sure you recognize. Uh, And that's not what you were asking. Um, But if you could just start to learn where it's coming from and where it's going and so this dark money that regina has talked about is no longer dark uh, or less of it is uh just that it it just seems from everything that we learn, that the size of the flow of these funds is so enormous um that they do have impacts on how the economy works and therefore on how politics works and how societies develop um such that it's not behaving the way that the market models that we learned about in high school or college um, would suggest that it's supposed to behave. So I, I'm just hoping that we can see more of it, uh, even before figuring out what the what the weapons of law enforcement might be.
1: Uh, as you mentioned, um, the. Alexei Navalny has done a lot of work on his blog, kind of trying to expose things and that that raised his profile. But Regina, maybe can we dig into him as a character a little more as we talk about Russia? Maybe talk about a little more of, of how he developed into what Western media is just calling opposition figure, uh, but maybe it's a little more complicated than that.
2: Um, Sure. So Navalny is playing a very long game. He's been, he got engaged in politics, sort of opposition, uh, social democratic politics in the early 2000s with Yabloka. And he was a, a sort of like civic organizer in Moscow for the Yabloka party, which is still a party that competes. Uh, During that time, he forged a network and ties with a bunch of young leaders across the the political spectrum, including the nationalists. So he was very much engaged in the nationalists. And this is the seed, uh, along with some statements and words he's used in his life for him to be uh, called a nationalist and sometimes dismissed as a nationalist. Um, He Was part of of, this is a really interesting and I think important fact about Navalny is that he was part of a reading club in which these young, mostly men, met every week or so and talked about major works in political science or Machiavelli or Weber or classic readings and uh, educated himself. Um, He also was kicked out of Yablaka because of his nationalist identity and emerged on the public scene at, in 2011, 2012 when a large, uh, basically Putin stole an election, a parliamentary election, the Putin team stole a parliamentary election. And uh, unexpectedly, large-scale protests broke out in Moscow, and Navalny emerged as a compelling figure through those protests, and that was uh, sort of his foray onto the national stage. Um, Andrew, do you wanna do you wanna pick up from there, or do you wanna add some to the story?
3: You're literally the one who's written the book on this, so <laughs> I don't want to be seen as trying to have the last word. Maybe I'll have a word, and you can go back in. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and I will, uh, I'll simply pick up on because it has been in the news uh, fairly recently, uh, the, the nationalist side of Navalny, um, both to talk about how it's real and to talk about how we shouldn't allow it to distract us. Um, his his work with the nationalists, uh, some pretty virulent nationalists, uh, was consistent over time. He helped plan some marches. He spoke at some marches. He made uh, a commercial, an ad for legalization of weapons that was um, quite ugly, um, recommending that you you should have a gun so that you could shoot a terrorist the same way you would smash a cockroach with your shoe. Um, the uh, immigration was an issue for him when he ran for mayor in 2013. Uh, he didn't talk about it in nearly the same tone, but it was still clear that he was he would prefer less immigration to more. Um, he talked about it in terms of limiting uh, illegal immigration, uh, establishing visa regimes, these sorts of things. And this is an issue for Muscovites, uh, right? It resonated with Muscovites. He's not coming out of left field on this. Um, but the, So so it is real. It's there. Uh, the reason not to get distracted by it is uh, both because it is a real issue in Russian politics and... Um, and because it's currently being used by the Putin administration pretty clearly to tarnish him, right? So this, uh, I'm, I don't know if everyone has read about it, but a number of people have read about uh, how Amnesty International has has delisted him as a prisoner of conscience because of these stands. Uh, but we should make clear that Amnesty still calls for his release uh, unequivocally. Uh, they recognize that he's in jail uh, for uh, political reasons. Uh, and the the uh, the pressure put on amnesty was pretty clearly orchestrated. Um, and I would point out that this is a mechanism that the Putin administration uses uh, consistently, which is when it's accused of something, it points you in another direction. Uh, something that happens in American politics all the time. And you just have to be careful um, not to go chasing the substance of whatever the accusation is, because if it weren't that accusation, it would simply be a different one. Um, and it's, it's probably incumbent upon all of us to become better at holding multiple ideas in our heads, to so not looking for heroes, or at least perfect heroes. Uh, Navalny is a serious anti-corruption investigator. He is a serious opposition figure, and he's also a nationalist. So where do you go from there?
1: Yeah. Uh, Regina, can you talk a little more about that Russian context that Andrew was was mentioning there? Because, I mean, I don't know what is normal for Russian politics. Does it lean more nationalist than we would be comfortable with in the West, for example? Or is Navalny absolutely over in his own kind of right wing camp politically?
2: So. That's a that's a great question, right? And our colleague Marlene Laruelle, who has written extensively on nationalism, wrote a very compelling paper that said that Navalny has the same level of nationalism as President Putin. So that on the nationalist scale, they're about the same place. Um, that was that was uh, probably a decade ago that you wrote that paper. Since then Navalny has softened. There's a very nice piece by Masha Gessen, a, a very uh, well-connected observer of Russian politics in the New Yorker this week where she sort of traces Navalny's nationalism. And so he is in line with the Russian people, the, the mainstream beliefs of the Russian people. He has, con- he has moved Probably further away from that with time. And one of the things that is often called he's called out upon is that he doesn't take down his old posts or he doesn't repudiate what he said. And he explains that in a sort of complicated way, saying it's part of history and um, that it's part of the record. And, and that's where the cynicism comes. But I wouldn't say that he's tremendously out of step with the guy on the street in Moscow.
1: Just just a reminder, there is an opportunity for your questions or comments uh, to get to me. You can text them at 330-541-5794, the number's on the screen there. You can also tweet them at the City Club, and they will arrive to me on my screen here just like this question. How about that for a segue? Uh, This question is, does the Russian legal system have any sense of fairness or justice uh, that Navalny may take advantage of to get him out of prison, uh, first of all? Or is this a hopeless case that this is totally trumped up charges and uh, he's kind of at the mercy of whatever uh, the Kremlin wants? Andrew. uh, Yeah.
3: Yeah. Uh, uh, start and let Regina have the
1: last words. (laughs) I
3: think that's an excellent question, uh, because it's a complicated one. Um, it's easy to think of Russia as uh, sort of having no honest judiciary figures at all. The entire court system is bought and paid for and so on. Uh, Catherine Hendley over the years has done a lot of work on the development of the Russian legal system. um, when I talk about her work with my uh, undergraduates, I we, we find that her, her essential message is that sort of the lower down you get, the more likely you are um, to get sort of a fair hearing, um, which means that somebody like Navalny may be in trouble. Uh, and I mean, he, he clearly would be in terrible trouble in a face-to-face combat with Putin, right? I mean, Putin would win right now not necessarily a fair election, who knows who would win, but uh, if you went right at Putin, um, and tried to make him fall, and he decided he wanted you gone, you would probably be gone, Uh, but it's interesting that he isn't yet. Now, he is incredibly lucky not to have been after the Novichok attack in August, right, Uh, but up until then, uh, he was harassed uh, rather than sort of uh, Maybe fatally assaulted, um, and that's interesting as well. Uh, it, it sort of looks like um, he has become more of a threat, more of a nuisance, more of a problem for the Kremlin than in the past. Uh, and you know, a two and a half year sentence to a penal colony in Russia—it could end very, very badly. Um, and it's—I suspect that his lawyers will cont- will continue to fight in both Europe and in Russia. Um, the Russian government will continue to push back. Uh, and if they need a decision to go their way, I suspect that it will, Um, but that's sort of the nature of Russian dissidents, um, and Soviet dissidents, too, to just continue to plug away through the legal system, through research, through through the exposure of information, Uh, and it's tough to say exactly how it will end up. Uh, It's an incredibly unbalanced fight, but it may be interesting to see what sort of surprises the Navalny team can pull out.
2: So let me just add here that um, the last two trials, the first Navalny, whether or not he could be held after his return to Russia and then the hearing about whether or not he would um, uh, be his, it's hard to translate his at home order would be revoked and he would have to serve his sentence in a penal colony were very, very much politicized justice. And by what that I mean, that there was no even mask of fairness in these trials. The judges were very poorly organized. They uh, did not abide by the rules of the court. It was very clear the decision had been made before it happened. In the first instance about uh, revoking his, his, his suspended sentence, it was so sloppily handled that it does create an opening to rehear that case. The judge made a lot of legal mistakes. The witness for the uh, for the the prison system was a very young guy who looked like he was being hung out to dry. So this was all very performative, right? And the fact that it was so poorly performed makes me think that there might be some room for negotiation. But this wouldn't be through the legal system. Right now, there are so many open-ended laws and ill-defined regulations that almost anybody can be arrested for anything. And if the fix is in, you go to jail.
1: It seems like there is in increasing sophistication maybe in uh, like the video that uh, Navalny's team put out after he was arrested, for example, uh, purportedly looking into this uh, extravagant compound uh, from Putin. Um, and we've also seen other citizen uh, powered journalism initiatives like Bellingcat, uh, which really picked apart the poisoning of Navalny, figuring out who the strike team was from the FSB, for example. And, um, and we see protests which have sustained to some degree in Russia which as a as not an expert that seems to be notable that there are some protests uh, persisting uh, but regina you you mentioned before that protest is kind of a natural part of of <laughs> russian life right that it's it's part of how they do business so can you talk about how this moment might be a little different than normal Russian protests?
2: Sure, um, so since about 2008, there's been a, just a huge increase in Russian protests, whether it's strikes or protest about historic preservation or about demanding your pensions or your healthcare reform, that's all been increasing. Russians tend to think of this and the participants in these protests Think of this as non-political. It is, of course, political in that it's fighting and contesting, but it's not asking for regime change or for Putin to go. And even when there are political protests like we saw in post-election protests in 2011-12, in the anti uh Uh, Ukrainian invasion protests, the anti-Crimean protests, the recent protests in the Far East to demand the return of Governor Fergal, those are political protests because they're explicitly demanding some sort of political change. And the fact is that the parallel development of these Two tracks of protests have been coming closer and closer. And it's building capacity within Russian society to make demands on its government. And we, we look at Putin and the oligarchs and their cronies and we say nothing's changed. We've had four presidents and Russia's had Putin He's going to stay in office till 2036. But in fact, Russian society is changing profoundly. And Russian media is changing profoundly as well. So in the regions, there are very bright spots of independent media. Uh, there are several uh, sources of media from outside Russia that are widely used from within Russia through web platforms. Even the Pussy Riot Group has its own, founded its own media, very compelling media, Medi- media zona which live streams protests and interviews protesters and shows people what's really going on. They were part of the story of what showed uh, the police brutality. So so yeah, I, I think, and then the other, the other thing that's happening right now is that there will be elections in September, 2021. And Putin's party, United Russia is very unpopular. Uh, people have a very strong sense that elections are not free and fair. And Navalny and his team especially, but other actors have transformed the election. They're not allowed to compete, but they can use the election to show people how corrupt it is. So it's not a fight over seats and votes. It's a fight over the truth of the way the system is working. And that really is an explosive kind of situation and probably why The Kremlin is so um, nervous about Navalny.
1: Andrew?
3: Yeah, um, I would just uh, fill in a couple of things, uh, some of which I've learned from Regina, frankly. So um, I should mention the elections. uh, uh, Those can be focal points in um, electoral authoritarian regimes. Uh, We have a colleague, Henry Hale, who's written a lot about that. Uh, which is one of the reasons that they are important. Uh, the administration wants to demonstrate support, uh, but the, uh, the opposition gets focused on the elections. Uh, elites get concerned about the elections. Uh, if Putin's party is going to lose, to whom do they hook their wagon? So it just, it's a time when things loosen. Um, in addition, uh, as Regina was alluding to, Navalny has, has learned, as we were talking about earlier, another way uh, to campaign. Okay, if you've been forbidden from running yourself, um, and the uh, administration has been content to allow seven different opposition candidates that are going to get somewhere between 1% and 3% or whatever run uh, to splinter the opposition vote, what can you do? You can do the smart vote thing. Uh, you can point to a single candidate. Uh, if you're afraid of that candidate getting disqualified, you know, if you announce that support ahead of time, maybe you announce it right before the election after the disqualification period, um, and hopefully concentrate opposition opposition votes. It's still not clear whether you can win, but maybe you can get 40% of the vote instead of three or something like that. Um, and another thing that about, um, particularly about authoritarian regimes, is tipping points seem to play a role. Uh, and so from the outside, um, it looks like things aren't changing. And then all of a sudden, something happens. Obviously, nobody, uh, well, not nobody, but very few people predicted the fall of the Soviet Union. Um Mubarak looks stable right up until he's not. Um, and so one of, one of the ways that can happen, and there may be others, uh, is that information spreads about just how many people are discontent. Uh, it's very dangerous to go out in the street by yourself and protest. It's dangerous to be a part of a group of a hundred. A 1, thousand means it's a little less likely that you're gonna get arrested. 10,000 makes it even easier. And so the bigger the numbers, right? Everybody's got a certain safety level that they need, Uh, And if you start to get more and more information that more and more people are discontent, maybe you're more and more likely to join protest movements or protest votes. So right after Putin falls, everybody will say, see, it was obvious. But (laughs) right up until it happens, uh, only Regina sees it coming.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, Regina, before you uh, maybe chime in again, this person asked a question in line with what you're saying there, Andrew. Uh, what is the possibility of regular citizens changing the entire political landscape that we see in Russia? Is it too early to tell? Or is this a process we're living through right now, and we just don't know where it's going to end up?
2: So I would actually say that it is the ladder that even last week, remember in Russia's constitutional reform, one of the big selling points in the constitution was that pensions would be indexed every year to keep up with inflation. And the regime tried to back off on that promise and there was immediately an enormous backlash and they've had to concede not only to index pensions but to reorganize the pension bureaucracy. So this capacity of citizens to demand change is putting pressure on the Kremlin to change its own policies and it's putting pressure on the Kremlin to balance domestic politics under uh, against international politics. So where are you gonna spend your money? Where are you gonna invest? So there are bigger constraints happening now. It's always difficult to uh, predict revolution but I wanna point out um, in, in the context of uh, Andrew's sort of information cascade or, or tipping game, uh, these are these are tools we love in political science that most Russians, we talk about Russians as being apathetic or disengaged or or otherwise not interested in politics. Anyone who uh, takes a cab or a train ride or interacts with Russians know that they talk about politics all the time, just not in a way that they recognize as overtly political sometimes. Um, they complain about their taxes, they complain about bad governance and corruption. And really, what we see is that Russians are alienated, not apathetic. And as they start to see that a protest gets a response or demands about pensions get reforms, they're likely to be more and more active. And I think so there are two paths to change. One is this gradual path where the regime has to become more responsive and change what it otherwise might do. And there's the... And whether that's fast enough or complete enough, the thing that this regime, the Putin regime has been a master at is doing just enough to bleed off the pressure. But that pressure is building and building and the friction is building and building within the society.
1: Uh, This question is somewhat related. Uh, Maybe, Andrew, you want to start, as as has been our our order here. Uh, This person argues that uh, the U.S. should focus on something else, uh, that benign neglect of Putin would help Russians dislodge Putin, not external pressure from the U.S. Uh, What do you think about that? Is U.S. involvement in any way uh, in Russia just going to make it worse and maybe create a propaganda opportunity for the Kremlin?
3: So that's an interesting question, uh, because at some level, uh, that's probably true. Um, uh, another thing I think Putin is very good at is deflecting blame, uh, which is part of his being able to do exactly enough uh, to stay in power or maintain his you know 60% majority or 70% or whatever it is he needs. Um, He and his spokespeople are very adept uh, at deflection, at at what we call whataboutism, right? As soon as you complain, right, the the EU minister who was there and uh, tried to bring pressure about Navalny uh, and about crackdowns on civil society was quickly uh, chastised for problems in uh, the Basque areas of Spain because he's from Spain, right? That happens all the time. Um, At the same time, I would uh, just remind us that just like... um, Americans don't think about Russia all the time. Russians don't think about America all the time. Um, When we think about Russia, when Russia is covered in the United States, there's often a tie. uh, Sorry, yeah, there's often a tie to U.S. interests, as there should be, in American coverage. But um, as Regina was just alluding to, uh, Russians spend most of their time thinking about Russia, uh, whether it's about corruption or taxes, or whether the electricity works, or whether their uh, apartment uh, facilities are are functioning. Uh, or where their kids are going to go to school, or whether they'll have a, a society to grow up in which they'll be able to find a job, that sort of thing. Um, so American foreign policy serves purposes for domestic consumption, right? It makes a, a point to Americans, and it tries to make points to uh, Russian elites, uh, but it may not have the, the most enormous effect on sort of individual Russian citizens. Uh, so uh, in that sense, we can't do as much as we'd like, but we can't make as much of a problem as we might fear that we do. Uh, And and so in those sorts of situations, maybe the right thing to do is support those who speak out for uh, information flow, transparency, civil society, uh, and and all parties uh, being able to participate in politics.
1: It seems like a uh, reset of Russian relations with whatever country uh, seems to come up. Uh, Anytime there's a change in uh, administration, both in the United States and I follow European politics fairly closely, you see that over there as well. Um, But it seems over the years that it's clear, uh, at least in my loose uh, viewing, that Russia doesn't want to reset relations with anyone. It's just kind of getting what it wants without a minimum investment in diplomacy. Uh, at least that's how it seems um, uh, to me. And Regina, I was wondering if if you could comment on that. Do you think that Russia is more or less accomplishing its its goals even on a limited basis? Uh, I think about the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline to Europe. That seems like a, a win for Russia that will eventually be accomplished. Um, uh, you know, we we saw Crimea, obviously behavior in Ukraine, behavior in Syria, where Russia pretty much just did what it wanted, um, and the West balked, but nothing changed. So.
2: I, I think that you're right about that. There's a stealth campaign, a similar stealth campaign happening in Moldova now to uh, politicize the Russian uh, population there and create the sort of frozen conflict that we've seen in Georgia and uh, in uh, Ukraine. And that's, that's just deepening that crisis, not alleviating. I do think that the crisis within Russia is growing, that Russians themselves appear to be more aware of the cost of this foreign interventionism uh, for domestic uh, consumption or domestic services. And I think the most dangerous thing, and here I'm gonna tread on Andrew's turf, is that uh, politics and economics have come together now in complaints that people have about Russia. So that um, the protesters we saw across russia it were diverse geographically but also cross class and this this is a really dangerous development for the regime it used to be able to count on quiescence among workers and and so forth i think the other thing and 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 it still can because The regime employs many of those workers and people are fired for protesting and there aren't a lot of jobs for them to go to after they're fired. And this is a huge point of fortune uh, when we see working in Belarus. But I think the other way that political economy uh, comes together is there is business support now for the opposition for Navalny uh, that comes in through crowdsourcing, that's very significant. That's how they bailed people out of jail with this hidden support. That's how they make these very nice videos and, and so forth. And I think the biggest thing is that Putin bought quite a bit of time with the annexation of Crimea and this appeal to what was a very deep sentiment that Crimea did always belong to Russia that Khrushchev gave it away when he should not have and and that this wasn't any sort of affront to international politics but a return to the historic status quo and and but in the mm-hmm. interim Putin's plan for developing Russia as a great nation a great economy one that can stand on its feet and support its people to invest in theater, art, culture, for which Russia has known, is not working. And people are starting to look and say, okay, 20 years, stability isn't enough. What is your plan? And there is not a plan. And in that sense, political economy is coming to the fore. And and with uh, I don't want to talk way too long, but I want to point out how useful it is for Russia to keep putting itself forward as a member of a new Cold War or saying that it is a great power because that invokes Russia as this very great power when in fact the gaps in Russian capacity to influence global politics are quite extensive. And we don't pay enough attention to the real limits on Russian ability to interfere. Putin's been extraordinarily lucky. He's intervened uh, in places where he knew he could win, where US capacity or Western capacity to respond was limited, but there aren't an endless supply of those kinds of places.
1: Andrew? I uh,
3: I agree with all of that and would pick up and say that one of, to me, uh, it seems that one of Putin's greatest skills is playing weak hands very, very well. Um, He does that domestically and he does it internationally. Um, Some of that may be sort of part of his nature, uh, whether it was, I don't know, him growing up or the profession he had or whatever. Uh, He seems quite content to play the long game on a lot of things. Um, He's not bombastic. He doesn't make massive promises, uh, which the communists did and which several authoritarian leaders do. Um, He has delivered on some. Stability for a long time was in fact enough, uh, but Regina's right that it seems to not be enough right now in domestic politics, um, particularly when it comes uh, at the cost of economic growth while massive corruption seems to be going on. Um, But when he plays in the international arena too, um, he likes to poke sort of wherever he can. It's hard to predict where he's gonna poke next. and usually, it's in places where he can retreat quickly if necessary. Uh, certainly, he can use his de- deflection tactic. Um, when, uh, when Trump was elected, uh, it seemed clear to me that a strange uh, coincidence of interests had developed between Russia and the United States, uh, which is not to make any claim that one side controlled the other. Uh, but that Putin, for a long time, has been dissatisfied with the international system that was built after the Second World War by the, the Western powers because he thinks it doesn't favor Russia. Uh, I think he's not wrong. Uh, Trump was convinced that this very same system didn't benefit the United States. I think he was very much wrong. But both of them wanted to weaken it, uh, and so it became easier for for Putin maybe to to shake at it. But he still, even without that, right with Obama, he. he Flew uh, over Estonian territory. He flew into Alaskan airspace. He just wherever he could poke. uh, Maybe that's training as a spy. But um, he seems to be able to do that. But can you do that forever? Uh, Or if you ask it differently, can you do it after Putin? Can anybody but Putin make
1: that work? Uh, I'm
3: not so sure.
1: Is there in after Putin? I mean, I I. I have a hard time imagining he would just uh, slip into the shadows uh, one day, especially being in power as long as he has, uh, uh, amassing enemies, uh, certainly, and allies. Um, do we know kind of what the strategy is if stability's not enough and he has to deliver something and there's increasing pressure on someone who likes to poke others uh just an aside i remember an anecdote that he brought in big dogs when he met with angela merkel just to uh just to mess with her because she didn't like dogs like that so uh regina maybe first do do we have a sense of what what the path is in russia right now especially for putin
2: no So what's very interesting is that Putin wrote a new constitution that uh, massively increased the powers of the presidency and his hold over the constitutional court. Uh, limiting the powers of the legislature, creating checks and balances across the branches of the legislature to constrain it, and also creating new institutions like the Security Council, And, and also at the same time lifted term limits so that he could potentially stay in office till 2036, but he needs to win an election to do that and i and he's supposed to uh, president putin is supposed to go up for reelection in 2024 uh and it would be entitled to two more six year terms I think that we don't know what will happen and it will depend in part on what happens in this election. Can they control this election, turn it into a plebiscite and make sure that Putin's party maintains its control over the legislature? If they have trouble here, they might go to plan B where they create uh, a new figure. Prime Minister Mishustin, Moscow Mayor Sabyanin, both are popular figures in Russia right now, sort of organize around them, present them as a new plan or a new face of great Russia and uh, push it forward. But let me go back just very briefly to this idea of benign neglect. I think the concept is right in one point, is that we make Putin great by only talking about Putin. Putin is the leader of a system that has to work together to stay into power. So we should be talking about Russia. We should distinguish between Russian society and Russian government when we talk about human rights abuses. And we should be really much more clear instead of what has been the discussion, which is entirely Putin-centric. That's not quite a popular view, but that's what I would say.
3: I think that makes great sense and helps think about what happens after Putin, uh, whether he loses an election or he dies, presumably one of those things will eventually happen. Um, the system is not just him, and we'll know that the day after he passes away, um, but but there are questions about you know how much of it runs through him, how much of it relies on the fact that he has tried to run his administration much like a spy organization uh, or... Um, like an unsavory underground society, let's say, uh, where he has compromise, he has uh, compromising materials on uh, others. Where he, you know, he knows who's corrupt. Uh, does he keep all that, and does it die with him, or does he pass it on to a successor? That regimes like this that are um, not um, not fully institutionalized uh, have trouble in passing power to the next person. Uh, it's unclear who that would be. Uh, you won't know until you start start to get towards the end of the person's term, uh, or the end, of, if he get if he's sick for a long time or something like that. But if he dies suddenly, it could be quite chaotic. Uh, I agree fully that it's not just um, Putin, and uh, some of what Navalny shows uh, is how all these other players uh, are getting rich or exercising power, or uh, how local governors are able to facilitate takeovers of factories and all this sort of thing. Um, but I do wonder what it will look like when this major cog is removed.
1: I, I remember when Medvedev uh, came onto the scene and it seemed like at least for a time, it looked like he was being groomed as an heir apparent uh, to a layman. Uh, maybe it didn't to to you experts. Uh, but ultimately, that became a palate cleanser, I guess. And then Putin kind of doubled down on the system he had built. Um, do you think that adds credence to this idea that there could be another figure put in Putin's place or... Um, like that was a dry run, for example, uh, for what you're talking about? Or do you think that was a different situation? Uh, Andrew, you wanted to take that first?
3: Um, a lot of this is has to be speculation because we don't know what folks were thinking. Um, when I saw it first happening, and I don't think this anymore, right? It, has, it went very differently from where, where I thought it could go. Um, the Mexican system for a long time, almost a century, uh, was dominated by one party. They had elections. Um, they chose the president. Everybody knew the PRI was going to win. Everybody knew the pre-candidate was going to win. Uh, but they had a six-year term. They stepped down. And after the first one or two, they were out of politics, right? Way back in the twenties, they sort of settled that question that the president is gone, um, And so there was this turnover and it looked to me like somebody might be trying that in Russia, which clearly turned out not to be the case, Uh, whether it was never intended to be the case or it just didn't seem like it was going to work. I don't know. Um, But since Putin has come back, there hasn't even been discussion of that. Instead, there's been this effort to prolong his sort of legal occupation of the presidency, you know, beyond what one might expect him to live. Um, So. Even if it was an experiment, it doesn't seem to have been one that has been uh, palatable to uh, important members of the elite.
1: Hmm. Any thoughts on that, Regina?
2: Well, it's it's hard to tell. I think, like everything else that happens within the presidential administration, they are looking at these models that Andrew referred to. But remember, Medvedev takes over at the moment of the global economic crisis, and so they had to switch gears pretty quickly and in fact he couldn't control the elite. There was looked like there was going to be some infighting and contestation among the elite spilling over into sort of electoral or or popular politics and so they quickly switched gears and put Putin back. That was a long time ago and we're in a different world now and so I think if they tried that again, it couldn't be just a Putin protege. It would have to be someone who's a proven effective governor. And this is, I think, why it would have to be someone like the Moscow mayor, Sabyanin, who's really transformed the face of Moscow, who's very popular, or uh, the technocratic prime minister who is rebuilding building his own crony network now within the govern- government and building his own support.
1: So maybe that's a, a good space to stop uh, for, for each of you. Maybe could you give some final thoughts, especially looping back in Navalny, uh, because he is still in the news, but what should we be looking for with both the situation with his imprisonment and appeal, uh, but also with uh, Russian relations in general uh, with the United States in particular? Uh, Regina, you want to take it first and then Andrew.
2: Sure. So um, let me just say that Navalny is also playing a long game and he also has a deep team in a bench. And so Navalny can continue to influence Russian politics from uh, prison. His team is very adept and he will continue to be a player. His wife is emerging as a popular figure, Yulia Navalnaya. I'm not sure she's decided yet whether she wants to be that popular figure, but it's very different from Belarus in the fact that Navalny and Yulia, Alexei and Yulia have been a team, right? So this is different. And and that's a game changer as well, if she jumps in. Women in Russia are participating now more than they ever have. That's a new challenge to the regime. So um, I think that the US President Biden is uh, true to his word he cares about human rights. He cares about democratization. I don't think he will make some of the same mistakes that the U.S. made in the 90s, but I do think he's going to be continuously looking for ways in order to support. And I hope that these will be multilateral and that they will also include these attacks on dark money that we talked about.
1: Andrew? Right. Uh, I think
3: I would start by saying that uh, some of the stuff that, sorry, build on what Regina said by um, saying that in some ways it's easier to see a transition from Navalny to a new opposition leader than from Putin to a new um, president. For me, uh, I, I don't. It feels seems to me that the that the um, sort of structure that Putin has built, uh, a lot of it, at least at the top, depends on him. Um, Certainly, a lot of Navalny's success has depended on him, but he's also built a network uh, that other people can fill in. Uh, People where there are funding sources, uh, there is a commitment to a certain mission, uh, and one can imagine people filling in. Um, The last thing I would say, it's a little bit different from that, which is that it it pays to remember that there are a lot of people, we don't know how many because uh, opinion polls are tough to trust, but there are a lot of people who do like Putin. Putin has governed for a long time. Uh, he's taken the country through the the oil spike, through the oil crash, uh, through the, the global financial crisis, uh, through wars in Georgia and in Ukraine and in Syria. Um, and while there are things he's not delivering, um, he has delivered quite a lot as well. Um, so it's, it's going to take A lot of time uh, for an opposition to push him out. Uh, And we should remember again that most Russians think about Russia and sort of their daily life. And some of them are content with it and pretty happy with Putin as a candidate. So that's it. While we sit here and are very frustrated with the violations that he commits, uh, and I think rightly so, people living in the country may see it a little bit differently.
1: Well, thank you both uh, for your time. This was a fantastic conversation. And thank uh, everybody for joining us for today's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World Forum. We have been talking about Russia, Navalny, and pro-democracy movement with two political science professors, Dr. Andrew Barnes of Kent State University, Dr. Regina Smith of Indiana University, Bloomington. Happy Dog Takes on the World is presented with the support of an anonymous donor and is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, of course, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and IdeaStream. We do appreciate this partnership. All of the City Club's virtual forums are presented for free every week, thanks to the generous support of many members and organizations. You can check them out at cityclub.org. I am Tony Ganzer. Thank you for joining us this evening. Our forum is now adjourned. Thanks for being here.